If you have been paying attention, you might have noticed that despite making a big deal of Easter in previous years, there's been no Holy Week or Easter sermons from me on this podcast for 2022. Part of that was due to the rotor, but the main part of it is that just before Easter, I came down with Covid and thus was unable to be in church with other people, though my wife and I did share communion at home. This sermon, therefore, for the third Sunday of Easter on the 1st of May 2022, was my first Sunday back in church preaching an Easter message. And so we have the account of Saul's conversion in Acts, as well as a reading from John 21 and Revelation chapter 5. You are listening to a sermon from the Pilgrim Path with your preacher Samuel S. Thorpe. Theology, the art and science of speaking about God, has been described in many ways, not all of them positive. Indeed, sometimes it seems as though theology is considered as something of a dirty word, as if people are trying to use complicated jargon to justify their own biases or to diminish the spiritual value and insights of observations of regular Christians. As someone who is theologically trained, I found it helpful early on to realise that true theology It's that which draws the believer to worship and praise God, recognising that they have glimpsed something of who he is, and that he is always greater than we can intellectually comprehend. That's not to say that we can't comprehend a lot about God, because God has truly made himself known to us through the life death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, our crucified Saviour, who lives forevermore beyond the grave as our Lord. This is a staggeringly significant statement, which points towards a truly wonderful reality. God, the divine mystery which sustains and gives meaning to all of reality, has made himself known to us in Jesus. In his flesh and blood, in his very physicality and humanity, he becomes literally graspable and personally knowable. Theology is, in this sense, thoroughly practical and pragmatic. And there are two images which I think are helpful for us to think about theology. The first is that of a finely woven tapestry. I suspect that few of us are experts in tapestries, but many of us may have heard of the bio tapestry. At 70 metres long, it represents a sequence of events which led to the Norman invasion of 1066, ending famously with a depiction of King Harold slain by an arrow to the eye. It's enormous, and there are many details which could be examined. 
from the techniques of embroidery through to the origins of different dyes that create the vibrant colours, to the history of the time that we see glimpses of in the images on it, both martial and political. And then there's the history of the tapestry itself, from its creation to its survival to its display now today. Whichever aspect intrigues you the most, there's something which engages everyone. Whether it's standing there and just taking it all in as an experience, or whether it's getting up close and examining the individual threads, there's a sense of interconnectedness. Everything is both physically and conceptually woven together. The other image which I've often found helpful for describing theology is that of a garden. I first came across it in a book by T.C. Hammond, an Irish Anglican, which I was given as a boy by my grandfather. In his introduction, he says that anyone can appreciate a garden. We see the flowers in the beds and the colours of the leaves of the tree, and we can each recognise something of the changes in the seasons, even if it's only the colours of the leaves before they fall from the trees. Some of us might learn the names of various plants, perhaps in English and perhaps in Latin. Others might be gardeners, like to get their hands dirty. Perhaps they might know the best way to build supports for the tomatoes, or which fertiliser is particularly good for roses. Some gardeners are hobbyists, while others take it very seriously. And a few might become biologists, who understand on a cellular level the processes of photosynthesis and the intricacies of morphological taxonomy. Whichever level of knowledge or involvement might best describe you, the garden and the tapestry provide us with a shared realm of experience and enjoyment, with different aspects we can each appreciate. The same is true of theology, such that it seems to me that in our church there are no non-theologians because we each encounter the Easter revelation of the resurrection of Jesus, and we are impacted by him. I particularly like the image of the garden when it comes to our passages of scripture today, because there is a risk here that we could miss the wood for the trees. We could use lots of fancy words to identify the Christological theophanies in Acts, or eschatological and apocalyptic allegories and metaphors in Revelation. Or in John, we could delve into the rhetorical triad, parapsychology and phenomenology, the chiistic return of the disciples to their former vocation, or allusions to the deuterocanonical examination of Exodus, and indeed the earlier references to Jesus' ministry with a miraculous catch of fish and a meal on a beach. I'm sure that there's been plenty of PhDs titled with such jargon, and I'm sure that they're genuinely interesting and helpful pieces of research. But here, on the beach, theology with terminology and academia 
risks obscuring a thoroughly practical reality which by the power and grace of God may invigorate us spiritually. Are we ready to be invigorated spiritually? It's the observation that Jesus eats in the presence of the disciples. Yes, we have a reminder of Jesus feeding the 5,000, which itself alludes to the Exodus. Yes, we have a repeat calling of the disciples. And yes, we have a vivid and tangible reminder that Jesus is physically present. He is not a ghost by any means. But the core of this gospel story comes not so much from what we might say, but what is left unsaid. The disciples arrive on the shore, and they find Jesus with a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it, and bread. And Jesus says to them, come and have breakfast. And none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was Jesus, their Lord. He came and took the bread and he gave it to them, and so with the fish. And they knew it was the Lord. They had been with him during his travels around Galilee. They had fled when he was arrested and they had witnessed his execution. For us, Easter is a celebration of the resurrection. It's the highlight of our liturgical year. Yet for the disciples, it was a day filled with confusion and disbelief. What did it mean? What on earth is happening? This is in part why we celebrate an Easter season rather than just a single day. Because we too have to come to terms with the consequences of the reality that Jesus is barbecuing fish on the beach days after dying on the cross. Saul had to come to terms with the same realisation. He, a good and respected student of a revered Rabbi Gamaliel, had been one of the Jews who understood with all of his intellect and all of his learning just how significant the claims of the Christians were. He wasn't minded to agree to disagree or to go about mutual disagreement and flourishing. He was thoroughly, violently opposed to anyone, man or woman, who claimed that Jesus was resurrected from the dead and truly was the Son of God. It took Jesus coming into the presence of Saul in the midst of a blinding light to stop him in his tracks. He was blinded. He had to be assisted by his companions to wait in Damascus, fasting until a faithful disciple named Ananias came and laid his hands on him having been told to do so in a vision. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road, has sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose, was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Again, Saul's faith had a physical component. Scales fell from his eyes. 
he rose and was baptized. And then he ate and was strengthened. Immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. The disciples did not need to ask who Jesus was, because they knew. Saul asked because he did not know, but then he spoke up because he was convinced. And each of them, knowing Jesus, ate with one another and were strengthened in their faith, in their bodies, in their lives, which now linked with Christ, will endure with Christ beyond the grave. Following the resurrection on Easter Day, Jesus comes into the presence of the disciples and eats with them. Because of this, we, knowing the Lord, gather as his church so that we might eat in the presence of God. This is the theology of the church which we can all engage with and be invigorated by. The bread which we shall bite with our teeth and taste with our tongues is the physicality of our faith, the living body of Jesus which preserves our bodies and souls unto everlasting life. So as we, like the first disciples, come to terms with the reality of resurrection, let us hear the words of Jesus on the beach as he prepares us for the feast. Come and have breakfast. As we join him, let us become aware of being surrounded by the company of heaven, let us conclude the Eucharistic prayer together, joining the praise of heaven with a loud voice, saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honour and glory and power forever and ever. Amen. And as we having eaten the bread of the Eucharist, return to our seats, preparing to walk into the weeks which lie ahead of us. Let us also hear those words that Jesus has said to all of those who would know him as their Lord and Saviour. Follow me. <laughs>